In September of, of 1996, I caught a flu, just a regular flu. But the reality of the situation for me, Scott, is that flu has been at the same level since September 1996 with me every day. Um, I had a doctor at the time. Some people just aren't as emotionally strong as others. And sometimes, you know, life is hard. And so basically what you need is you need a psychotherapist and I'm going to send you to these relaxation classes. Getting that blood work back and finding out they had microplasma pneumonia. They said my early antigen number for Epstein-Barr virus meant that in layman's terms, Epstein-Barr mono was reactivating my body every 24 hours of his. So she said, you're at the first 24 hours of mono every day, basically. What sort of blows me away now, that my Epstein-Barr number was off the charts and the highest they had seen. She said, I apologize for all the years of abuse you've been given from the medical community. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Imagine back to when you had a bad flu. Remember the nausea, head spins, pain and soreness, vomiting and diarrhea, and crushing fatigue? Remember how the worst lasted for a few days? Now imagine having that flu for a few weeks, or a few months, or like Jeffrey Smith, for a few decades. Now think of the millions of COVID patients. A good number of the survivors are not fully recovering from this flu bug. They remain sick for weeks. Soon they will have been sick for months. And if they are unlucky like Jeffrey, and the healthcare system will effectively abandon them. Most doctors didn't take Jeff's ongoing flu symptoms seriously, dismissing them and subtextually blaming Jeff for being emotionally weak or not trying hard enough or not really wanting to be healthy. So when Jeff started to have bowel symptoms, he didn't tell his doctor, who needs to be invalidated and gaslighted again. But it turned out Jeff had a tumor and needed surgery, and suddenly the healthcare he received was empathic, prompt, validating. 
a stark contrast to the years of dismissal and gaslighting of his flu symptoms. As Jeff explains, the tumor for which he received exemplary care only impacted his quality of life a fraction compared to how the never-ending flu shattered his future. And as the COVID deaths and infections continue to rise, the people who do not recover may also experience disbelieving doctors and a healthcare system that doesn't care. If you would like to support the podcast, you can hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or any of the other major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error or living with chronic complex illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Jeffrey Smith, and a word of warning as always, some people may be triggered by Jeff's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? Sure. Um, I grew up in a small little hockey town in Canada um, in the 70s called Campbellford. Um, and in the 70s in Campbellford, it was sort of like the 50s <laughs> still, because there was not the connection we have today with the internet and things. So I remember in the 70s, I'd see people on TV with long, hippie hair, but they, all the young people had buzz cuts and worked on farms when I was growing up. So it was, it was an alternative universe. And uh, my childhood, uh, my childhood was traumatic. I, I, I was gay living in this small little town. Um, everybody played sports or, or worked on a farm. And I was someone who liked to watch, you know, uh, movies with Lauren Bacall and draw the dresses and all this sort of stuff. So very quickly, school wasn't a safe place. And home was um, safe, except for emotional safety that, you know, my mother had a a lot of emotional issues. She was very young when she had children and had a traumatic childhood herself. So we didn't really have emotional security growing up. So I didn't really have security at school. I didn't really have security when I was at home. I didn't feel safe. So it, it, it was challenging and rough. Yeah, yeah. When did you start to feel safe? <laughs> it took an awfully long time. Uh, I didn't feel safe until I, I left and I, I came to Toronto and, and started going to, to post-secondary school. And I had been very, very unpopular because I was um, considered other always as a kid. Um, there's only so much you can hide and you pass a bit, but people stay away and even new people come to school and they're friendly with you, they find you fun, but then they get the vibe that, you know, you're not someone that's going to help them be popular and stuff. So, but when I came to college, um, all of a sudden I, I was popular and I was the same person. And so that was very fascinating and confusing. I sort of had always dealt with life. This sounds awful, Scott, but I always sort of dealt with life thinking 
I'm probably not going to live that long so I don't have to figure it out. But that you find something as a kid to survive, that sort of stuff. So it was very strange when my life started unrolling and um, I realized I wasn't going to die. <laughs> no. So I had not why, why did you think you were going to die young? I had so many health issues as a kid. So oh. I had like, and, and we didn't realize this for a long time, but I'd had nine convulsions before I was five. It ended up eventually, I was tested for allergies and they realized that I had these really heavy, heavy environmental allergies. And so uh, I got a, uh, they gave me an air conditioner, which was a big deal in 1970, to have an air conditioner in your bedroom. Um, that was very expensive. And I sort of stayed in that bedroom. I mean, it was like an iron lock. I felt okay in there, you know, in the summer anyways, right, when I was supposed to be outside. But when I go outside, then I would be very, very sick and then I'd have these convulsions and all of this sort of stuff. So in my head, somewhere became this thing of this difficult life. It's like, I really did just sort of feel, and I think I was even kind of given some of those messages that, you know, I was very fragile and I might not survive. <laughs> it was just a coping mechanism that became eventually. And as I got older, um, like in grade nine, um, I had a flu and I was off school for three months and no one could resolve this. I had a fever basically for three months. Um, so there was this hypersensitivity to the environment that, that I, I grew up with organically and biologically. I started shots when I was five years old. I was so skinny, they couldn't put them in my arm, they had to put them in my leg. Um, that started to help. So the convulsion stopped and between the air conditioner and, and shots and allergy medication and not going outside, I, I, you know, could, I was a little healthier and I was a little better. And then I had this thing when I was in grade nine, again, no resolution to it. At the time, no one ever suggested it was anything emotional or, or non-biological. I even had the doctor come to the house because I was, I mean, I had temperatures and I had all, you know, all the things that they knew that this was like an ongoing flu that would not stop. Um, so got over that things I kind of went you know back to normal again and everything sort of was okay until I got mono at 19. Were you and living I was, away from home at that point? That was actually I got it the summer I was leaving home so finished high school go to actually I sort of the last I think I sort of partially took grade 13 remember grade 13? <laughs> so I kind of partially went through grade 13 but not fully and I got mono that summer and this is something that Stanford asked me later when I went and had my consultations with them. But they asked me what that mono was. And I said, well, you know, for two months, I was not able to really lift my head off the pillow. Like, actually, I was lying on remember, downstairs in the basement on a sofa. And I did not leave that. Like, I had, like, a jug to urinate in. Like, I could not get out off the bed. And then it really lasted for two years. So for two years, I had night sweats. Uh, fevers, chills, you know, went on and on and on until it really wasn't there anymore. So it's a strange thing, isn't it? Wow. So yeah, really obvious symptom of the of an infection with the night sweats, etc. Yes. And at the time, you know, it's funny too. When I look back, it was um, 1985. I went through that. I remember that's when when um, AIDS 
came on the global scene. And, and I remember even thinking, my God, I must have AIDS. And I'd never had sex. <laughs> oh, I go to the doctor and I'm like, you know, with my national choir with Rock on Center, right? You know, maybe I have this. And the first question, have you had sex? No, he goes, I don't have it. Anyways, it, it was just this strange, I mean, to, to have, to be this sick at, in your young age and not have real resolutions for the medical thing other than you've got it, we, we watched your temperature, we see your lymph glands, we see, you know, you are obviously very sick, but we don't know why you're still sick so long. Wow, so how did you transition from being at home in high school in the small town to going to college during that two years? That must have been rough. It was so rough. Um, I think because it, it almost is, is a gay kid, you learn to sort of act and you sort of learn to be a people pleaser and, and to um, do what you need to sort of do to be liked. And so I would just be, you know, um, energetic at school but then go home and I'd be dripping wet with these sweats and um yeah just so many symptoms and I would just crawl into bed until I crawl out the next day and um but it was still such a good time in my life I mean you know because I was meeting new people and and um I was learning a bit of value of myself and my, just being myself and my creativity because I was taking photography and so it, it was, I look back and it was a very good time, but it was, it was very rough. I just remember another part of it was, whether it's irritable bowel or diarrhea, I mean, like easily 10 times a day, like every day for two years while I was getting over the mono. And so, you know, you, you're dashing out of class, you're leaving lunch twice, you know, with people and hiding all these things because you just aren't physically up to it, but you're trying to appear you are, you know. Right. So two years to recover from that mono, then what was happening in your life? Well, life was really good. Um, I was um, finishing school. I was trying to find a career. Um, I had friends. I mean, it was still rough. These were days that are a little different than they are now. So you sort of, my parents were giving me a little bit of support, but you're sort of just living in people's houses in their basements or in a spare room and trying to get started on your life. And, but my health was, you know, okay during this period. I sort of basically went from the age of, um, I guess now I'll say 21 to 30 with okay-ish health other than some really bad flare-ups with allergies. I remember, again, another period, and I was off work for three weeks um, in my 20s, again, just from really, really bad allergies. Um, I done something very stupid. I brought a plant <laughs> into the house, not knowing what it was, and until I threw it out, I didn't realize that it was making me so, so sick. Um, it's strange that Again, going to see doctors with this, you know, no one was saying, doing the tests and saying your histamines or whatever the case may be are, are, what are out of control. And it was just always curiosities to people. I was always told the same thing, which is a post-viral malaise constantly is different doctors, whether it was, you know, even um, just, you know, somebody had seen a clinic or whatever. It was always the same, same thing I was told. 
We had a relatively good period there into your early 30s. And what sort of work were you doing at that point? Um, I, I, I got a job in a bank. I did not want to work at a bank, but I wanted to buy a Mustang. And I couldn't buy a Mustang being a photographer. It was just not hard, possible. It was too, too, too little money. Um, so I got a job in a bank, which I didn't really love, but it certainly brought stability to my life. And then I met my partner who became my husband um, 30 years ago. And my life really started. I met him at 24. So from 24 to 30, that was sort of my best period um, in life because, at least with my health, because my health was, you know, at a definitely a, uh, a decent level. Um, I was fully participating in life um, outside of these really bad allergies and things I was doing, but um, it was really good. So uh, the allergies, how far did they extend? So some plants, obviously, pets. Yeah, the base. I mean, it's environmental, so it's trees and grass are my worst, worst things. Um, and I can never really get away from trees. But I had, I was on shots for twenty four years, which is really extensive. Um, and um, I was being tested regularly, and they never did go down. Like. I think that the maximum little X's they would put beside something was four. And I was always at fours for grass, trees, mold, pets, you know, kind of the main ones. Um, and I did live on um, allergy pills for two decades or three decades or four decades, possibly even um, every, every day, um, even in the winter because of dust and all of these things. So it had me duty, you know. And, and the weather changes really would affect me too. So we're in spring now. Is it this a bad time of year for you? Really bad, really bad. It's stupid, but every little change in the weather, I feel it, and and they all affect my immune system. So, you know, my immune system has always been fighting this, and this is where you know I'm so curious about ME and connections with all these things because my immune system you know, has been so battered like since birth with allergies and it's something I'm curious and I don't know. There's a little bit of information we're having with mast cell, um, you know, and all that, but I really, I still think there's something there that hasn't been figured out yet, but. Yeah, hopefully they'll connect those dots soon. Yes. So in your health journey, what happened next? Sure, so in September of, of 1996, I caught a flu, just a regular flu. This is, this is always such a curious thing to explain. And I throw this description around a lot without even feeding on it and, and, and feeling it myself. But um, this flu I got, which was like any flu, it was a bad flu, but you know, a normal bad flu you get. Um, but the reality of the situation for me, Scott, is that flu has been at the same level since September 1996 with me every day. And when I try to say this to people, the only way I can say it is to say, okay, if you think of that really bad flu, you had to really remember that your head was swimming constantly, that to get up and use the washroom, you waited till the very last moment to do it. When you got up, you felt very, very dizzy and unstable or holding on to things. You've got chills, your, your body, really hurts, you're, you're very dizzy, and, but the fatigue is at such a level that you sit and lie there for 20 minutes before you turn over. 
because you're that fatigued. And people sometimes can remember that, that the flu, when you have a really bad flu, you're like that. And then what I have to try to say, okay, is, and it's hard for people, but okay, so you felt like that and you felt like that for three days, really at your worst or whatever. Take that to three weeks and, and nothing changing, nothing getting better. And then um, try to imagine then getting up, showering, putting on clothes while you're sweating and um, you know, you're dizzy and holding onto the sink. And then going and waiting for a streetcar or a bus or a subway or a combo of all those things. Getting on and not even having the energy to stand. So leaning because you can't stand and getting to work and trying to go through a day like that. Um, and then getting home and just all day thinking about collapsing in your bed. And during the day, not being able to meet any of your obligations at work cognitively um, or energy-wise. Um, now, take that three weeks and go out to three months, right? And you, and you are still the exact same as the first day. And you're now back at work. And what's happening is, you know, people are saying to you, um, you know, your performance is really down. You know, we have to talk to you. We have to put you on probation. What, you know, what's wrong? You're, um, you're at six months. You're back at the doctor's. This is your third, fourth visit. And they're saying you have post-viral malaise, you know, which is what I was told. You're at six months of that flu, not being able to stand, being so dizzy you can barely read. You're, 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 you're weak. You can't concentrate to watch an hour television show. Where I'm going with this is 23 fucking years at that level. And there's a bit of ebb and flow, but, you know, and you go up a little bit more with energy and this and that, but basically dealing with full-blown flu for 23 years while you're told you have post-viral malaise and um, when will it get better? Um, oh, soon. So that's the only way I can describe what happened to me in, in September 1996 is this flu hit and I have every single symptom to the same level and in some cases more severe now 23 years later. That we'll talk all about what happened medically in between, of course, but that's the reality of what ME is for me. That every little thing I do there are, it, there's this orchestra of 80 instruments loudly blaring at me. You know, one is, you know, this instrument of no energy. The other one is of extreme dizziness constantly. The, uh, like to the point where I hold on because I black out, but I don't black out and fall. I black out, I just go black and I have to hold on when I stand up sometimes. And, but anyway, so there's this orchestra playing constantly. Um, and you're trying to do things like work or be a, be a partner or be a son or be a friend or um, anything. Yeah, it is really hard for people to wrap their head around that time frame of having the flu and it never goes away. And it sounds like, because I often hear some people with chronic illnesses say, oh, you know, I have good days and bad days. But it sounds like you have bad days and worse days. I, I, I used to probably have kind of good 
days and bad days and then it became good half days and bad days and now it's sort of good hours a few good hours a week and then the rest are bad and that's not to be dramatic or for empathy or anything but it's just the reality of all the symptoms yes so you're, you try to go back to work, you're cognitively impaired, physically impaired, you know, just not able to work like you were able to work before. How did that and how did your health and how did your health care play out? Sure. Um, I had a doctor at the time who probably was, I mean, I've had, I'm trying to think how many doctors I've had since I became ill, um, probably three three main practitioners um, and then on the side as you can imagine seeing so many people um, but again going back to this doctor um, you know at the I think the six or nine nine month period maybe at the six month period he pulled out a sheet of paper that said chronic fatigue syndrome and he went through the list with me I did not have constant sore throats and this is 1986 and so he said, you could not possibly have this, but I had all the other things, almost everything else. So I came back at nine months again, and the same thing. Um, no, you, you don't have this. What you have is, and this is where we get into the overlap of misogyny and homophobia or whatever we want to call it, but I'm, I'm a gay man. I was not, he knew that, he's my doctor. So we got into the nerves conversation you know um you know you just you don't you know you some people just aren't um as emotionally strong as others and um sometimes you know life is hard and so basically what you need is you need you know um you know probably a uh, psychotherapist and um i'm going to send you to these relaxation classes the one consistent part of my story too scott is that um I was grasping at straws. I was so sick and functioning so low and frightened. You know, I mean, I would get to an intersection with the car and put in the left turn signal and turn right and nothing seemed strange about that. I, I would question the honking, like, I don't understand what's happening. I was so debilitated. So anything, anyone gave me any straw, any life raft, I reached for like desperately. And I, I took these relaxation classes. And what it, what it say about all these things that were suggested for me and and I tried and and, and um, even though not one of them helped my physical health, um, I'm not going to sit here and say that they were not advantageous to mental health. They 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 were things that helped my life. I mean, taking a stress class, going to therapy, all these things are wonderful and helpful and i've i've taken advantage of what they've offered but not one of them has stilled the illness by one percent <laughs> um so i i followed all these things i i went to these doctors that doctor retired shortly thereafter um don't think it's because of me <laughs> um but um then i i found another doctor um and he was taking what he was seeing in me a little bit more seriously. And he sent me to like tropical disease clinics, um, neurologists, you know, different places. Again, 
with the overall theory that, you know, I'm, I'm sensitive, I'm gay, you know, I'm possibly, you know, um, it's nerves again, you know, I don't think he knew the answer. He was empathetic. He was caring, um, but he, di he didn't have a solution. And this is the one thing I've learned through this whole process is everyone wants to put you in a box and have an answer. And if someone had just said, even at some point that we don't know, we're going to test you for what we know, it's possible we have something we just don't understand yet. There's some other people. I mean, the information has been there on chronic fatigue syndrome in the 80s was a big term. Why this, why people were already um, thinking this was the yuppie flu and there was nothing real about it is so frustrating and, and so frustrating over a quarter of a century of it. For folks who are listening and aren't familiar with ME, very often the onset of ME is because somebody gets the flu and they just never recover. It's a very common story, people who have ME. And right now with the whole COVID global pandemic going on, we're starting to hear that some of these people who recover from COVID aren't actually recovering and their symptoms are very similar to ME. And obviously they were infected with a virus. And yeah, so I, I'm really thinking about all of the new people that may be coming down with ME and it's less likely that their symptoms are going to be dismissed as being psychological or you've got bad nerves or any of the other psychosomatic bullshit uh, just because of the nature of the the onset the global onset i think this is so true and i from SARS, we learned, I forget what percentage, I think 17% stayed pretty much at the level of SARS illness. And then something up to 70 some percent still have remaining lingering um, symptoms that are debilitating them to some level. If we have this global pandemic, without a doubt, we are going to have millions and millions of more people that will having whatever switch turns on and off inside of you, whether it's in the immune system or inflammation in the brain, I don't know, but, and are going to be diagnosed. And that could really be beneficial. And I hope it is for everybody's sake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it might turn out that COVID is the best thing to happen to people with ME. Yes, yes. Because absolutely. so many people with COVID seem to be developing ME. And, and Scott, we know in Canada, there's about 600,000 people with it, which is a huge percentage. It's so much higher than other illnesses we know so much about, like MS and ALS and all of this. If we like look at these numbers and these possibilities, like, I mean, they're gonna have to then, I hope, <laughs> put all these resources into figuring out this post-viral situation, whatever they're gonna call it in people, you know, whether they connect the dots and, and describe it, you know, confirm it as ME or whatnot, but something huge is going to happen with this without a doubt. And like you say, this could be the end of suffering for, for like we say 600,000 people in Canada. There are way more people than that. There are so many people that are just so missing, you know, from life that people don't even know. I remember when I was a young 
young kid, there was a woman across the street who slept in a bed in the living room of her house. She could not get out of it. She was very sick. She was there for like 30 years. And I remember people just, you know, like wondering what was wrong with this woman. Like, you know, was she just so frail and, and not able to handle life, which is what most people thought. Um, was it, you know, the vapors, the Victorian, like what was wrong with this woman? Well, it's obviously something because she's a woman and she's weak and it's an extreme version. I mean, and I just think this poor woman suffering for 30 years without any understanding. You know, we've gone through so much with myalgic encephalomyelitis without understanding, but I can't even imagine the people before us. Yeah, without the internet, being so isolated, being shut-ins. I remember that term, they're, they're a shut-in, no real explanation other than they were sort of sick. And you believe, you know, if, if everyone is saying it's in your head, because I experienced, this is my life, you know, everyone kept saying this. I did start like real therapy in this, like the Freudian sense on the couch you know, going through life. And like all of us, there's so many things we can talk about. And it was helpful. It was mentally healing and emotionally helpful. But again, not one thing reduced one symptom of my ME. Believe me, um, going to therapy does not stop Epstein-Barr virus from reactivating your body <laughs> and making you very sick every day. Even my husband, we thought, we thought, you know what, you don't like the work you're doing in the bank. Um, you want to be an artist. You know, you're just, this is what happens when people aren't living their real life. And so you're just really, really, really depressed. You don't know it, but you're just really, really, really depressed. Every outward sign from me pointed that I wasn't depressed. I mean, I enjoyed my friends. I enjoyed my time with people. I was very sick but very hopeful, very optimistic. Um, and, um, you know, there just wasn't, I was in bed, not because I was, I was in bed and I was sad because I was in bed, but I was not in bed because I was sad, you know? Yeah, important um, distinction. So during all of these years that you have ME, you also had a couple of other health challenges. Yes. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's an important little lesson for me and I think other people in this. One of the one of the elements of um, ME is gut problems and IBS and all of this. And I was experiencing um, very frequent bowel movements again around kind of the, the late 2000s. Um, and a, and a lot of issues and because with me when you go when your symptoms get worse when you go to the doctor with it you don't always see it but there's an eye roll like here he is again oh he's dizzier this time oh he's more tired this time oh now he's got diarrhea i mean all these things fit into what they already think about you so you get to the point no one can help me no one is helping me. I don't like look, being looked at as crazy all the time or, or depressed or, or something or not mentally well. So I'm not going to add fuel to the fire. I'm not going to mention these things anymore. 
you know, uh, uh, nothing good ever became of it, ever. Um, and the, the um, illness was accelerating for me by the end of the 2000s. So um, everything was getting, you know, I would, my floor was dropping a bit. And um, so I ignored all this and I ignored it to the point in which I couldn't ignore it anymore. So I, I did mention to the doctor who booked a colonoscopy for me. And um, after I had the colonoscopy, you know, he took me in the room and said, yes, we found something. What it was ultimately was a, a rectal tumor. And I had to have um, what they call, oh my God, a, a, a bowel resection, I think they call it. But basically what they did is they removed 95% of my, my rectum. Um, and I was on an ostomy bag for six months. And then I did qualify for a reversal which means I don't have the bag anymore, which is wonderful not to. There's there's issues to deal with in the sense of when you lose 95% of your rectum, you know, life's different. But my experience with that was, you know, here's something that is irritating me 20, 30%, affecting my life 20, 30%, as opposed to this 100% of this, this DME. Um, but as soon as that became apparent, it was like I was in another world, in another twilight zone, in another life, because all this help and empathy and understanding and support and um, emergency appointments, and you've got to have surgery within two weeks, and and they kept doing biopsies, and um, it it was a, such a strange thing to experience, you know, after all this other stuff, because even though all these words are scary. Um, this was, a, as I say, affecting my life in a smaller way than every day with ME. Um, but the outcome of all of this was in order to get this reversal, which I very much wanted because I'm very, I was too weak to change the bag. It, it's, um, if, if, if you've never done this, it's like a half an hour to an hour of standing up and having to remove all these pieces around where the intestine comes out of your stomach and clean and clean and clean and wash. In the meantime, this thing spews because it just spews liquid all the time. So it's, it was extremely hard to deal with this with ME because I, I just, I, when I stand, I, I tremor because I, I have POTS as well. So my blood pressure and my heart rate go crazy and um, I can't really stand and you can't sit and do this. I had a nurse for a while, I qualified for a nurse for a while, um, but again, because the ongoing problem was the ME, it disappears, right? Because, um, nope, that's not gonna, no, you're not, there's no help for that. So, anyway. I say that there's really two healthcare systems. There's the one where if you have HIV or cancer or a tumor or something that they know how to yeah. fix, you can get pretty good care. Yeah. Yes, you have something like ME where they don't know anything about it and you get really shitty care. You get really shitty care. And not only do they not know something about it, it's been around an awfully long time. And people don't want to know about it because they don't have a pill. They don't have an easy answer. And if they say it's your emotions and this and that, they feel they've given you a cure. They, they've resolved case number, whatever. And they don't want to tell somebody. I just, I don't know. I think it's possibly this and we don't have anything to help you with. But if someone had said that, it's like, oh my God, my life would have changed. 
you know, I wouldn't have been beating myself up for 23 years for not being good enough, for not working hard enough, for not trying enough to get out of this dazed state of dizziness and fatigue I was in, thinking I had created it by not being good enough, you know? But when, when did you realize that you had been gaslighted for all those years? God, I, I feel I knew that when I saw that sheet of paper at six months, that that's what I had because I had everything except one thing on that list. And in the back of my mind, I always knew that, yet I always responded to whatever they suggested, which was always the same things. So I always knew that, but the moment, that sort of epiphany moment when, um, I think this is around 2015 or 2016, I, my doctor got me an appointment at Stanford at the, uh, and I hate using the word chronic fatigue so frequently here because that's not the real word, but it is called the chronic fatigue syndrome clinic at Stanford. So I'll call it what they call it, but it's for myalgic and cephalomyelitis. I, I went there in 2015, 2016. So that is 20 years basically after having this horrible, horrible flu daily. Um, I went and um, I had prepared an awfully lot of paperwork about my history and including emotional health because I, I don't care what the answer is. Just some, please help me, right? So I talked about any major traumatic things in my life. I talked about career. I talked about relationships. I talked about being gay. I talked about, but I, obviously the main thrust of it was my physical health in this thing. And they reviewed it before I got there. And I saw a nurse practitioner. Um, she basically, you know, put the paper down and looked at me. And she said, she said, I, I apologize for all, for all the years of abuse you've, you've been given from the medical community. And I can't even say it because um, so much grief, 20 years of grief, you know, that I'd held in and never let flow because it was never, you know, I was never honestly told it. And I, did, I mean, I just, I asked her if I could hug her because I didn't know what else to do. And, you know, it, it um, I, I feel foolish for crying because I did. It, it changed my life hearing that because these were medical people and um, they were leading. I finally met someone who knew more than me about this. And they, I, I paid and had an expensive panel of blood work done. And because the appointments are expensive, they called me with the results. And um, what sort of blows me away now, you know, when I talk about this is, you know, she said that um, that my Epstein-Barr number was off the charts and the highest they had seen until that year in 2015-16 um, at Stanford. And I just, for the first time, I think, forgave myself for not trying hard enough. I, I realized all I changed jobs six, I think maybe six or seven times because I could not cognitively or physically do the job. Um, all the times of trying to get up and stand on streetcars and getting, being at work and just drenched in my clothes all day. And 
being so exhausted and then being reprimanded for my performance. And, and, and I just, you know, for a moment, I gave myself that moment where I realized you were so fucking sick and look what you still did. And, and you made yourself worse. You, you're worse today because of it. And I went through an awful lot because of that diagnosis and um, getting that blood work back and finding out I had microplasma pneumonia reactivating. They said my early antigen number for Epstein-Barr virus meant that basically in layman's terms, Epstein-Barr mono was reactivating my body every 24 hours in his. Um, so she said, you're at the first 24 hours of mono every day, basically. Like this, just, it, it was just, you know, like, it's like figuring out you're gay. It's just like everything makes sense now, you know? And she, she cried because she understood. I mean, she's, the woman before me was from Sweden, right? Who had flown there to see them. I mean, so she understood what she was going through and telling me and what it meant and all of this. So it's so powerful to be validated uh, that you really are physically sick with 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 tests like medical tests exactly yeah yeah proof yeah um and for her to open with i apologize for my healthcare worker colleagues basically the trauma they put you through my God, that was a kind gift. So did I hear you say that your doctor uh, arranged for you to go to Stanford? What, what happened for me was, um, because I was steadily getting worse, and this is something that we don't talk about a lot in the ME community is the progression of this illness. And maybe it's because a lot of people that are talking about ME are people that are newly ill and not as ill, and I think Again, we talk about millions missing, people missing. I mean, the people I know that are really, really sick, they don't have a voice anymore, so we don't know about them. They're, they're hidden. And, and uh, when we say they don't have a voice anymore, they physically cannot speak. They are so sick. They are so sick that to, to talk, and I'm sure you're, you've been like this. I know I have days where I cannot talk except for maybe 20 minutes, like after being up about five hours, because it's so draining. It's so, you know, and to do something like this, you know, I say I'm a good actor, but, you know, for four days, I did not leave bed at all because I knew this was happening. And, and um, you know, you just, I don't sit up very long because of the dizziness and all of this stuff. So, yeah, people cannot, no one knows they exist because you can't hear them. You can't see them. They're locked away in their homes. We know their names, you know? I know these people's names, and I know that I, I can talk to maybe their parent or a care worker or something and make sure they're still there and they're still breathing, but they don't exist otherwise. Yeah, that's really hard for people to understand how there can be so many people missing and be so ill that they're not even in the hospital, that you know, their family has to take care of them 24 or seven. And, and you know, we both know that um, they describe having ME as the last stages of HIV, AIDS or cancer. So, you know, when somebody is at the last stages of cancer, they, they are lying there, they're in and out of consciousness, 
they speak very little. I mean, it's ME. <laughs> it's the same way people are at the severe level of ME. Yeah, so you, you make it to Stanford, you get a diagnosis, you get validated, you get some testing that you never got in Canada, although you had to pay big bucks out of your own pocket for that. So how, if at all, has that changed your life for you? Um, or your health, I guess. How is that impacted? Sure. I mean, going to Stanford wasn't my doctor's idea. I actually had somebody, a friend, say they read an article in Oprah about this clinic in California, and it sounded just like me. And um, so I took him the article, and I do honestly believe he knew my suffering was intense. He knew I had taken relaxation courses that I gone to therapy and I was repeatedly getting worse and he could see it. And he actually said to me, he looked up from that article and this, this doctor was this like, I think probably about 80 years old, um, sweet, sweet, empathetic man wanted to have answers, even though he didn't. And he looked up at me and he said the word, the first time I've heard anyone else say it, it wasn't sick. He goes, you have myalgic encephalomyelitis. And I couldn't believe he could even say this and knew this word. But anyways, he, he got me the appointment. The saddest part, at, not the saddest, but a sad part of this is at the same time, I tried to get to the environmental clinic because together we looked where there's help. And I got in. People who don't know, the environmental health clinic is at one of the downtown hospitals in Toronto. And it deals with people who have ME, fibro, and multiple chemical sensitivity too, I think. Yes. Um, so that, at least as far as I know to this day, with all my connection, is still the only place in Ontario that people, doctors could find to send somebody to. I got to Stanford in three months, and people are coming from all around the world, but I, it took me, I think it was 19 months to get to the environmental clinic. And the experiences were not at all similar. Um, but anyways, having this information and coming back, my life changed in the sense that something that I believed, I now understood. And, and it was real. And, and I, I went through a lot of forgiveness with myself. And I had to go through a lot of forgiveness with the medical community because, again, you know, uh, the way MS was called hysterical paralysis or whatever before the MRI or whatever. Um, you know, even though maybe I dealt with a lot of nice people, empathetic people, the, the trauma of it all was and did, we know does cause people to kill themselves because there's no help and no diagnosis and no treatment and no empathy and, and really no hope. You know, um, so I survived that and I forgave myself and I forgave them in the way that I needed to, to be healthy. And that was around the time that um, I started some advocacy because I just, something was resolved and now I needed to try to do something about it in my own way with my own limited abilities. And that's how we met. And that's how we met. Thank you for that. So that was a gift, huge gift. So uh, the Stanford folks, uh, how did they go about trying to treat you? At that time, 
what they were doing was um, prescribing a, um, I, I'm really bad with medical terms, mitochondrial, I said mitochondrial yeah. cocktail mm -hmm. to abuse, uh, boost immune and to try to create energy and all of this. LDN and then an antiviral called avencyclovir. Mm -hmm. um, LDN is low dose naltrexone. That's right. And the what I what they told me I needed was a compounded version. That was kind of awkward to find a comp because I'd have to find a compounding pharmacy. And of course, you know, these things are expensive and all of that. I was supposed to be on LDN for I think three months. After two months, I spoke to them and I had to go off because I was just um feeling so sick. And I just think my immune system is so flatlined that anything. Like I have such problems with medication now, which I never used to, but anyways, I just was so ill and I really was probably in bed for three months during and after the LDN because um, it was just taking something out of me. I don't know. But then they, then they said, no, they can't prescribe because I'm Canadian, but luckily they would send a fax to my doctor and he would prescribe it. And then I did the Velcyclovir for, I think i was supposed to be on it for six months i think i lasted i think i went on it for nine months i, I stayed on it as long as humanly i could but everything seemed to be taking more away i think they even said at stanford that they said their chances of helping are diminished year by year that you're ill and that their best results come from people who are more recently diagnosed well, it's okay. I mean, you know what? I was trying something. It didn't work. It was becoming prohibitive cost-wise. I think it's like in Canadian, I think at the time it was about $1,200 just for the appointment. And then of course a flight and hotels, Palo Alto. So even a little flea bag motel is $340 a night sort of there because it's, you know, um, Stanford. Um, and uh, then the blood work was, I think the blood work was around five. 4,000, just under 5,000 US. Um, anyways, it's just something that was like, take out an RSP, cancel my RSP and do this once sort of thing, right? And then hope that leads to something. The environmental clinic that I saw in Toronto at Women's College Hospital, um, they really, they, uh, the first thing was they just sort of start seeing you. The one really big value I got out of that was that when I had to, you know, walk in and sit, and she wanted me to sit up on the on the, the examining table because I tremor when I'm sitting up or standing. Um, she died. She diagnosed the potential for POTS, which led to me seeing a cardiologist, doing the tilt table test, having it confirmed. Hope people who aren't familiar with the acronym POTS, it stands for post orthostatic tachycardia syndrome it, it, yes intolerance tachycardia syndrome yes and so what it means is that possibly your heart uh, sorry your heart rate goes up when you, you you stand or sit up as opposed to being flat or you um your blood pressure goes i think i can't remember if it drops or, or falls for me it's it's the heart rate my heart rate goes up over 30 beats per minute from lying to sitting to standing. 
Um, and so what that means for me is, this is why I am so dizzy and I can't sit and stand. <laughs> um, I remember when we were trying to meet the health minister at that um, uh, meet and greet in, was it Markham? And I remember standing, waiting beside you. And I didn't know I wanted you to see this, but I was like vibrating so much from just standing, how to stand that long and all this sort of stuff. So that was something good that came out of that. But there's no real treatment for it. More salt, um, maybe a beta blocker, but there's no treatment for that either. So it's wonderful to know it. It's wonderful to know that possibly some research going on and you're in that category, but there isn't a solution either. So, yeah, the best they can do is try to treat some of our symptoms, but not the underlying cause they're they're not there yet because they've never had enough research funding vastly underfunded exactly and the the other thing pots it seems to fall under well it does fall under cardiology and cardiology sort of has one big thing to offer which is exercise and so again i was told to exercise for my pots an actual cardiologist was on um, a board um, creating and trying to understand it and create this whole network. I think it was in Ontario or the whole country. But I kept saying, do you have anyone with ME, you know, in this group? And basically the answer was no, we can't have anyone with ME because they can't exercise. So there kind of went my hope that some help's gonna come from all that, but. Right, marginalized once again. I know, I know. So, what are you hoping to try next? Because I know ME patients are always wanting to try something else to see if it helps even a little bit. I, one other thing that I think is worth mentioning, if for somebody who's pretty healthy, um, a 5% improvement in their sort of quality of life or their health, they probably wouldn't notice it. If you're already working at 80 or 90%, 5% isn't going to affect too much. But if you're down at five or 10% of being able to do stuff and you get a 5% boost in quality of life, that is huge. Huge, huge. I'm trying to think of what I've experienced. There's, there, there, when you say good days, I mean, there'll be these hours, you know, I mean, how many hours would there be? Sometimes there's one hour a month. I mean, I'm not trying to be maudlin. But there's an hour a month where I will actually just like my little mind goes, I don't feel really awful right now. It's sort of like a Rosemary's baby when the pain stops. It's like, you know, there's just this moment where there's just this some lower relief of this orchestra and this cacophony of symptoms beating, you know, at you physically. They lower and oh my God, you notice it. I don't know about you or other patients, but a lot of it. It feels like my body corrects itself, which is, means it messes itself up again. And it says, I shouldn't be feeling this way. And my immune system turns on again, heavy. and Everything goes back to make me feel that certain way, which is like a, a preset in my body. It's supposed to be there to work normally now. Um, that's all I have to say, but. Yeah, that sort of fits with uh, that researcher, Robert Fair's hypothesis that we're stuck in uh, the sick state. Yes. And uh, it, it, it does feel like that because when I tried 
certain things they've suggested I, I will have these little periods very short periods a few days of relief but then it clicks back it's like you know where our bodies were supposed to fight a cold and get rid of it it's like our bodies are supposed to make sure we have a cold or a flu or mono and keep us there yeah so people may not and some people will know that when we get the when anybody gets the flu what makes you feel sick is not the flu virus but our body's response to the flu virus and yes. so that that's what we're experiencing is that constant flu feeling it's like if you, you many other things on top of the rest but it's like if you went and put you know put your car in neutral but just floored the gas until the gas is empty that's what every day is sort of like in a weird way you know your immune system feels like it's on full blast trying to fight all these things that may or may not even be there and i always describe it as i get 12 cents of gas a day and trip to the washroom is six cents of gas and to make a meal is and you eat it is 20 cents of gas and and so uh, you know you work in a deficit and we haven't spoken about pem uh, post-exertional malaise is that the right term mm -hmm. um but that is the biggest issue and the least understood issue of, of having myalgic encephalomyelitis which is where other people and you know this is an athlete you know you work up you build stamina you get to the point where you feel good doing those things but for us lifting anything bending over walking to the end of a driveway is never going to do us good it only puts us in a deficit which is crazy because we know as human beings we need to exercise we need cardio health but it makes us so much sicker just doing little tiny tiny things and and then of course emotional or mental things make us very sick as well mm -hmm. cognitive effort can any cognitive effort uh, so is there something that you're looking to try next? A lobotomy? No, I'm joking. <laughs> I feel like I have one, right? Um, you get a very black sense of humor when nothing works, right? I don't know of anything at all. I am now, if I go into my heart of hearts, resigned that I will never get better. I can say that without being emotional about it it's just it feels the reality to me i do feel though that it will be figured out and understood at some point and people won't go through it and i feel that that's sort of why i'm on this planet is to hope in my own little tiny little weak way to push that forward so no one has to lose their life and or decades of their life we're seeing more and more people sick there's going to be so many people with covid like you said that's sort of what i see my future well i i don't know what this progression will mean i don't know where it will go we know people who can't speak who are tube fed obviously the hope is that never happens what i do have i just want to be able to use to educate people because i i feel that each one of our stories has already educated people and when i post something on facebook i'm fascinated by how many people say i've heard of me i didn't understand it. i didn't know what it is you've taught me about it and um i feel like whether it's you know something as simple as 
civil rights or whatever. Like once you start giving people the information and the truth and the reality, help happens. And we know personally with somebody at the Canadian Institute of Health Research, having somebody who has seen patients with this, understands the suffering, understands that this 100% this is a biological illness, it just changes the world. Indeed. So you mentioned earlier that you, in anticipation of having to sit up for an hour to chat with me, that you've rested up for four days for this. So you've been sitting up for about an hour now. How are you feeling right now? The, the worst part for me is that the fatigue, which is already crushing, you know, just becomes to the point where my vision's blurred and, you know, um, and the dizziness is really, I, I sort of, I'm on the tilt to roll every day, but it's sped up a bit, quite a bit, you know, but I'm not saying that to end our chat or anything, but that's, this is heavy duty for me. This is what for someone else might be going for a 10 mile jog, you know, in their world or 15 mile, like something that really, throws them for days, four or five days, you know, whatever that might be. Yeah, yeah, like a 50 mile trail run would take four or five days to recover. Although even yeah. when I did long trail runs, I was never bed bound. You know, I may walked a little stiffer, felt a little tired, but nothing compared to me. I used to think, you know, triathletes were so tough. Pfft, nothing on people who live with me. You know, that's so wonderful of you to say that because I, my mind goes right to some of our friends who, who um, have been basically told they're weak and they are the strongest people you'll ever meet in your life because they're still here and still, and not only here, they're trying to help other people and they can't even speak or make a phone call. Yeah, I, I must say I'm not as sick as almost every other person with ME I've met. Um, maybe it's because I have HIV meds. I don't I know. Think, I do think that's it too. I think you're right there. Mm -hmm. There's something being treated in the immunology that is doing something different, I think. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And we've read the anecdotal reports of people with ME trying an HIV med and having a bump in quality of life. And yet here we are no doctor can prescribe these things uh, because you'll lose your license if you do to help somebody yeah yeah the repurposing of drugs that's a little bit of hope that that we have yeah well thank you jeff i'm gonna let you lie down i'm gonna go lie down yes please go lie down thank you scott it's always a pleasure thank you jeff um and keep up all of the amazing meaningful work that you do in our community well, thanks to Jeff for sharing his medical experiences. With so many COVID patients not recovering from this flu bug, it is a scary thought that their post-COVID symptoms may be dismissed as psychological or emotional. We may be in for another pandemic, a gaslighting pandemic. If you would like to support the podcast, you can hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or any of the other major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash 
Medical Error Interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error or living with chronic complex illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.